Good to see you guys. It's good to be here in the summer. Um, thank you, Amir, for inviting me uh, here. I'm, I am uh, all the time humbled and inspired by Amir. He's one of the humblest people I know and sensitive to what God is asking him to do, so thank you for that. He also lets me beat him in ping pong, which I appreciate. And um, so I get him talking about personal things, and then I beat him. That's my strategy. I do that with students, too. So if I haven't done it to you yet, I will um, if you come play ping pong. Uh, so tonight, I'm not going to introduce myself, really. I'm just going to jump right in um, because I'm a little worried that I've got, uh, that I'm going to talk too long. So I'm just going to jump in. Uh, tonight, I want to talk about waiting. And uh, I've talked about this in different contexts before. I think some of the students from OBU at NLC will have heard some of this and in, I think, October uh, last year, I spoke in Elevation and touched on this a little bit, talking about calling and some other things, but um, I can't stop thinking about waiting and waiting well. And one of the things I've learned in uh, my years of Christian living is that um, I do think one of the core sort of things about the Christian life is learning how to wait on the Lord and to wait faithfully. So we're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, every time I teach the Bible, I like to uh, start with scripture and prayer. And so if I could ask you to stand with me, uh, that may feel religious, but you know, here we go. You're sitting in a circle. That's kind of a Quaker thing to do. So we'll do kind of like a Catholic thing to do and everybody stand up. Um, just a second. All right. So this is a, a Psalm of David. I'm not going to read all of it. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord is that I will, and that I will seek after is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you speak to us in this scripture. And we thank you for uh, the example of David that we'll talk about tonight. I just pray that we would uh, let the word saturate our hearts. I pray that um, all of us who are distracted and weary and anxious would, um, that you would just supernaturally calm our minds so that we can hear you speak. And uh, we pray for courage to take whatever next step you're calling us to take. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you can be seated. All right, so we're going to look some in First Samuel, the story of David, and I have a prop. I don't usually have props, so this could go wrong. Uh, but this is, uh, I'm going to start, the, the only introduction I'll give you is personal confession. Um, I started a new hobby in 2015 because uh, I'm easily bored and I needed something to do with my hands. Uh, I get bored uh, doing the same things over and over. It's kind of a liability because I, I will pick certain things up quickly and then I go, oh, if that's all there is to it, then I move on. So I found something, I wanted something I could stick with. So I decided that, uh, it, that I, woodworking felt like the thing that I should do, right? And so I brought this prop along, this will feature in just a second. This is an old Stanley hand plane. And uh, one time, not all that long ago, it was hot enough that I was already cranky before I started working because I was in the garage and I knew it was going to be awful. But I had an hour to work and that was it. Um, kids were asleep. I had something to do later. I had one hour. And uh, I had this sense before I started 
that I should probably sharpen this old uh, Stanley hand plane because it needs to be sharpened all the time. But I didn't have time to sharpen it because I had things that I wanted to get done and I had a very short window to do it. And so I got my things out and spread it out on the bench and got my things clamped down and grabbed uh, this thing and pushed it across a piece of wood. And what you want to happen is this nice, like nearly see-through translucent piece of uh, wood shaving to just kind of peel off. That's what, if you look at Instagram, hashtag hand tool Thursday, all these sort of y- yuppie uh, hipsters and their pointy beards and their hand tools. Um, that's what they're posting about, right? It's like, you've got your coffee and your little curly uh, shaving of wood. And that's what I was going for. <clears throat> what happened instead is it just bound up and gouged this big hole out of the top of the wood. It looked like I had taken a screwdriver and just sort of poked it in. And I thought, well, the problem is I didn't push hard enough. Uh, because it's not, the problem is not that it's dull, right? Because I don't have time to stop and sharpen. So I pushed a little bit harder, and what happened the next time? I got another big gouge, big nasty hole in the middle of the wood. So I did what any uh, self-respecting man will do. I grabbed this thing like this, and I walked just past my car in the garage, and I chunked it out in the yard. And I didn't say anything because my garage door was up, and uh, I have neighbors that live close by. So, but inside, I was saying words that you can't say at church. And, uh, and I was just angry because now, uh, instead of accomplishing anything in the time frame I wanted, I had to go back and do what I didn't want to do in the beginning, which was take this thing apart and sharpen it. And now, instead of just finishing the task that I had when I began, I now had the task of repairing all the damage that I had done in the last 30 minutes, and I didn't get anything done. I went inside, and I was hot and cranky and crabby, and I had to clean this off because it landed in a mud puddle, and that's not good for metal. So, you know, it was just basically a total fail. Um, the, uh, there are two ironies in the story that uh, are not lost on me, and one of them is that uh, I did choose to do woodworking as a way to relax. And more often than not, it results in me throwing something and yelling things that I wish I could take back. The other irony is that uh, the thing that I was working on is a project for a friend, and it's a prayer bench. So um, (laughs) while I'm throwing temper tantrums and wanting to swear in front of my neighbors, I'm working on this bench for a friend who's going to use it to meditate, and that just makes me feel kind of bad. So what I learned about myself in the process uh, of doing all this, what I learned in general in the process is... um, I wanted to accomplish something that night, and I didn't want to be delayed by starting well. I didn't want to be delayed by preparing for doing the thing I wanted to do. I just wanted to jump right in it and do it. Um, I, preparing for the job, I have discovered, is part of the job, right? So preparing for the job doesn't come before the job. The job begins when you start preparing. And the reason I say that is because I think for, for all of us uh, in any stage of life, um, this is true, but especially when you're early in career or early in college or talking about college or whatever, um, we're in a stage of preparation. And the preparation brings waiting, and waiting is the worst thing in the world to do, right? To just sit there. And it's easy to think of our calling, our career, the thing that's happening next is the, that starts after our preparation. But the fact is, our preparation is part of our calling, right? The waiting is part of our calling. And uh, as an illustration of that, I I want to uh, point out one figure from the Old Testament. There are three that I think illustrate this well. David, uh, Moses, and who's the third? Joseph. That's the third. Uh, We're going to talk about David tonight. So if you want to uh, join me in your Bible, I'm going to be in 1 Samuel 16 and 17 for the most part, and then moving around a little bit after that. 
Uh, these three figures in the Bible, Moses, Joseph, and uh, David, we think about, when we think about them, we think about their calling, we think about what they accomplished in their mature ministries, right? So Moses led the people out of Israel, crossed the Red Sea, did all that. We don't think a lot, a lot about what happened before that. Uh, when we think about Joseph, we think about him rising to power in Egypt and uh, bringing his brothers back from a foreign land so that they can live in a good land and do all that kind of thing. We think about David. He's the king of Israel, and he's the best king of Israel. Um, it's under David that <clears throat> excuse me, the borders of Israel are the broadest. So the, the, the largest that the country ever got was under the rule of David because he was a good king. But what we don't talk a lot about is how these three men got to that place. So Moses, for example, when he first went back to Egypt, when, he, when the plagues happened, when they crossed the Red Sea, was 80 years old. And we know from the Bible that he was set apart at birth, but it took 80 years for him to get to the place where God used him the way we think of him being used. Right? And Joseph uh, didn't wait quite that long, but he waited 20 years between his calling and when that calling was fulfilled. Uh, and David runs uh, sort of a similar kind of pattern. So I want to talk about uh, David becoming king in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you look uh, with me around verse uh, 8 or 10, we'll pick up somewhere in there. If you, know this, if you don't know the story, let me bring you up to speed real quick. Israel has a king named Saul, and Saul is a dud. Uh, he does everything wrong. He's got basically three things that God says, don't do these things, and then he just sort of, one after the other, he does those three things. So he's, he's a loser. God told him, don't pick Saul. But they picked Saul anyway because he was handsome, and that never backfires, right? You just pick the handsome guy, and what could go wrong? And um, so, the, um, so Israel's in trouble. They're looking for a new king. And Samuel sends, uh, or God sends Samuel, the prophet, to the home of Jesse. And he says, in Jesse's home, you're going to find the next king of Israel. So he goes in, and he asks, Samuel asks Jesse, bring me all of your sons. And he brings uh, Samuel most of his sons, all but one. And Samuel goes down the line and he looks at them all. And the Bible points out, because the Bible's funny if you're looking for it, that the first one he looked at was tall and handsome. And Samuel thought, surely this is the guy. Well, that's what got us in trouble with Saul. He's tall and handsome. So God's saying, nope, not him. We're not picking the tall, handsome one this time, right? Just keep looking. And he goes down the line and God says, he's not here. None of these men are the one that I'm setting apart. And so Samuel asked Jesse, is there another son that you're not telling me about? And they said, oh, well, sure, there's David, but he's the runt and he's out you know, with the sheep and the what. Well, bring him to me, right? So they go and they send for David. David comes and right there in front of his brothers and his father, Samuel lays his hands on David and God says, anoint him for this is the one. So right there in front of his brothers and his dad, Samuel anoints uh, David with oil, anoints him as king of Israel. We don't know what, how old he is, but he's very young. The uh, Bible calls him a youth, so I'm guessing he's under 20. Um, and he's working in the, uh, the fields with the sheep. Samuel anoints him. And then the very next, uh, well, and this seems like this is the big break, right? This morning I'm tending sheep, and this afternoon I'm anointed king of Israel. This is a good day, right? But anybody know what the very next thing is that happens after... David is anointed king. Well, the very next thing it says is that Samuel left, right? So he packs up his bag. You are king of Israel, and off I go, right? Now, I don't think he was really into the job to begin with, but he's off on his way. David uh, goes right back to the sheep field, right? 
that has got to be the weirdest walk back to work uh, in all of history, right? You've got holy oil on your forehead. You've just been called the uh, king of Israel, and now you're back to chasing sheep in the field and thinking, I don't really understand what's happened today. Um, and he goes back, and he's the shepherd, and that's what his job is. Anointed king of Israel, what does he do in his day job? He shepherds sheep. Now, uh, in a little while, he's going to get a second job uh, playing the harp for King Saul, who you'll remember is a loser, right? And uh, Saul is depressed, and uh, when David plays the harp for him, he feels better, and that's their arrangement. So David has two jobs. One is shepherding, one is playing for a boss who is depressed, who feels better when he plays the harp, right? This is what he does for a living, while he is the anointed king of Israel, okay? So the point uh, that I'm trying to make at this uh, moment is that David is anointed king. We know what he's supposed to be. He knows what he's supposed to be. And his circumstances don't change at all. Right? He goes right back to doing exactly what he was doing uh, earlier that day. This is going to become a fairly familiar uh, experience for David. Um, at least one more time, he has one of these big moments where you think, surely this is it. Right? In the very next chapter, uh, Israel is facing off against the Philistines, and the Philistines have this hero named Goliath who's taunting Israel and the God of Israel and the armies of Israel. And he says to Israel, just send out your best warrior and I'll fight him. And if I win, you'll be our slaves. If I win, if you... Wait, you know what I'm trying to say, right? So the champion wins, the other people are the other people's slaves. Well, no one will fight him. So David, who's still a shepherd, comes to bring his brothers a sack lunch. If you've seen the VeggieTales version of this, then you know where I'm going. But, uh, the, so they come, he comes to bring them lunch, and, uh, and he walks into camp, and he hears this Philistine mocking God. And he says, is nobody going to do something about this to the God of Israel? He's saying that he's better than the God of Israel. Nobody in Israel can beat him. Are we going to stand for this? And they say, just give me the sandwich and get out of here, right? They don't have any, they were there when David was anointed king. They don't have any expectation that he's going to do anything about it, right? But David can't stand it. He can't stand the fact that nobody is doing anything about this. And so he goes into uh, the king's tent, Saul's tent, and he tells him, I'm going, to fight, uh, I'm going to fight Goliath. I'm going to fight this Philistine and settle this once and for all because this is ridiculous and it has to be done. And so um, he, I'm oh, sorry, I lost my notes. He uh, comes, I got really lost. Sorry, I got into the story and got ahead of myself. Anyway, the point is, he goes back to the field. He comes back to Goliath. Uh, and what we learn in the process is that what he has been doing in the field has prepared him to face Goliath, Right? It hasn't prepared him to be king, but it's prepared him to take the next step, which is to defeat Goliath for the honor of God and the glory of Israel, right? So he walks in, he tells Saul, I'd like to fight this giant, please, because nobody else is doing it. It's a funny story. Again, it's actually a very funny story. All in all, Saul puts all his armor on David, and David can't move. He says, this isn't going to work. You've got to take it off. And uh, so he's going to go out there in his uh, you know, shepherd clothes and with a sling. And uh, Saul tries to stop him, and he says, you're not credentialed for this. You're not prepared to do this. Uh, you don't have any training as a warrior. And in fact, he says it in uh, chapter 17, verse 33. He says it very well. You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. Which is to say that this guy has been killing bigger men than you since before you were born. So this is a really bad idea that you have. And what I love about David's response is that he doesn't worry about his lack of background. He doesn't boast in his background, but he looks at his experience that God has given him, and he, he realizes that what he has been doing has prepared him for this moment. 
So he says, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued the lamb from its mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. And I mean, that's pretty awesome, right? Um, There's a word for that that I can't say in church, but David is one of those, and it's impressive. And this is the part I really like. He says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. So what David says is that I haven't been a warrior since birth. I am not trained with a sword and a shield and a spear, but I know how to throw a rock, and I've been in a situation like this before. So I think I'm ready, right? What he does is he recognizes his experience. He recognizes that his experience as a shepherd has prepared him for this moment. But I love this. This is really important. He doesn't rely on that experience. Instead, he relies on God for the victory. He says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So he's not cocky about his, his uh, preparation. It's a really weird career trajectory from shepherd to war hero to king that he's on. But he's able, he has the imagination to see that God can prepare him for what's next in the situation that he's in. Um, David expects, accepts his experience and he trusted God. There's another uh, important skill that David developed while he was waiting. And uh, the text tells us that David went back and forth, like I said before, between the field of his father's sheep and Saul's house where, uh, in the palace. And uh, in the king's palace, David played the harp for Saul. When depression struck, he called for David. And the Bible says when David played, Saul, felt, uh, Saul would be refreshed and be well. So there's something about David's playing that moved him. Now, I don't know where David learned to play the harp. I don't think of shepherds. I think I have this sort of image, you know, of like cowboys and harmonicas and a crackling fire. But for some reason, the shepherd and the harp by the fire just doesn't really do it for me. But I guess maybe when you're out there with sheep, that's all you have time to do is you learn to play an instrument, right? So the king had heard that he plays a, a mean harp, and he brought him in. And, uh, but what struck me the, for the first time recently is this. David is playing the harp for Saul. We think about the playing. We also know that David wrote psalms. What if, this, what, if what David was doing that, that, that soothed uh, the king was not just playing for him, but singing for him? Singing prayers over him. Singing the kinds of things that are recorded in the psalms, not just for Saul, but on Saul's behalf, right? It's a ministry of music uh, for Saul, Think about Psalm 4. Answer me when I call to you, O God, who declares me innocent. Free me from my troubles. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. If I'm a depressed King Saul, hearing David sing that song over me would be a huge relief, a huge ministry. Or these words from Psalm 5. O Lord, hear me as I pray. Pay attention to my groaning. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for I pray to no one but you. So in addition to training in a field that prepares him to be uh, the warrior who defeats Goliath. Uh, in addition to that, he's also singing in the king's house, uh, writing music that calms this depressed soul. He learned how to be a warrior by shepherding sheep, which I said is not your typical career trajectory. He also learned to be a theologian, and I think how to lead people through spiritual despair by serving as the king's musical entertainment, which is also not a typical career trajectory. 
we put so much confidence and so much anxiety into majors and career internships and five-year plans and whatever because we think if we make one misstep in this plan, that's going to knock me off course for what God has for me. What I love about the story of David is that nothing that he's doing uh, for his day job on the surface looks like it's going to prepare him to be king. But all of it in God's hand is preparing him for what God has called him to do. Um, So I want to encourage us today to make decisions about our future the best you can. Weigh the decisions, think about what's next, and then take a step and wait for God to show you how it makes sense, right? It only ever makes sense in retrospect, and that's the problem. That's why people who are 60 will say it's not such a big deal. Well, because they have 60 years of experience, and when you're 30, you have half that much, and so everything seems like a big deal. When you're 15, you have even you know, half as much, and so everything seems like a huge deal. Um, retrospect makes sense of the path that you're on, uh, but you can't always see it when you're moving forward, when you're looking forward. Um, so I think plans are important. This is a message that I'm preaching for me, just FYI, uh, and you guys are just happen to be here. Um, but I'm a worrier. The O'Briens are a long, proud line of uh, anxious people. And um, so I come by it genetically and, and through nature and nurture and the whole thing. Um, but this is a message that I'm learning. If we had time, I'd tell you about all the jobs that I've had, and, and you would wonder how they got here. Um, but I can see it. I can see the theme. In this job, I learned how to be this kind of person. In that job, I learned how to do this kind of thing. And none of those things has been wasted, right? Make the best decision you can and then trust God for the future. The second thing David does that I think is really important is um, from the moment David entered the battle with Goliath until the day he sat on Israel's throne, which, by the way, is 15 years gap, between the anointing and taking the throne. In that 15 years, David did the work of the king, even though he was not acknowledged as the king, which is to say he took on all the responsibility for the job before anybody gave him the title or a paycheck. Um, He knew what he was called to do, and he just did it. Now, there's a big joke uh, in the story about David and Goliath that is not easy to see because the Bible likes to drag jokes over three or four chapters, and then you forget, when you hear the punchline, you forget the setup. But remember that Saul was, ha- tall was, Saul was tall and handsome, and uh, that was his major qualification for being king. The people wanted somebody to lead them into battle, and who better to lead you into battle than someone you can see over all the other people, right? So this is, I mean, it's ridiculous, but that's the truth. They wanted, they saw him, Samuel saw him, and it says in uh, chapter 9, verse 2, from his shoulders and up, he was taller than all the people, which means he's essentially a head taller than everyone else, right? He's a foot taller than everyone else. Um, and so Samuel says, knows that this is a bad choice, and every time he sees Saul, he says, look, here comes King Saul. There is no one like him. And what he means is there's no one that tall, but that's still not high praise, really, for a king. Um, so here's the thing. In the, uh, the camp, the fight between David and Goliath, uh, or between Goliath and all of Israel, the reason that Goliath is terrifying is because he's bigger than everyone else. But who in Israel is bigger than everyone else? Saul, the king, whose job it is to fight the enemy, Right? So the issue really is not between giant Goliath and tiny David. The issue is really between giant Saul and tiny David, right? 
Saul is terrified to do his job because he looks across and sees the only other person alive that's as big or bigger than he is, and he can't face it. But David, who's small, doesn't trust in himself, he trusts in God, right? And so he's not worried because I've got a rock and I've got God on my side, so this guy is no bigger than anybody else, right? What's height matter when you've got the Holy Spirit fighting for you, right? This is David's point of view. So David at that moment acts like the king. The king's job is to defeat the enemy. David defeats the enemy. He's acting like the king. And that seems like his big break, right? This is the moment when things are going to get better for him. When he's marching back home, the women are dancing and singing his praises, which is, you know, great. This is the beginning of something fantastic, right? Well, no, because after that, he goes right back to shepherding sheep and singing for Saul. The only problem now is that in addition to being depressed, Saul is also jealous. And so Saul tries to kill him periodically while he's playing the harp. Um, and so anytime David was playing the harp and Saul gets his spear out, David's like, oh no, I'm not going to make it through the chorus before this thing comes, you know, hurling in my head. And it says at one point that, that Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, uh, but David managed to get away. And why is Saul jealous? Because David has done his job and the people have seen it and the people are praising him for it. And Saul knows he's not qualified to be the king. Uh, because this man who is much shorter than he is, uh, is doing this work, the work of this tall warrior. Now, the, um, after that, Saul, there's a lot of chapters, the rest of First Samuel, you should look at them, they're very interesting, but it's hard to summarize. The short and long of it is, uh, Saul, instead of just trying to kill David in his house, decides, just declares war and is going to wipe David off the planet. He's tired of him. But David, because he's a man of integrity, has a bunch of men that stick up for him. And so he instantly sort of forms this little army. Uh, the, they call him the 33. He's got his, his 33 core men, and eventually it's 600. So, I mean, he's growing an army. And instead of fighting Saul with that army, what David does is he goes around to all the neighbors, the Philistines and the Amalekites and all that, and he defeats them in battle, which is what the king is supposed to do. But the king's not doing that because he's busy trying to kill David, right? So David is acting like the king. He acts like the king with Goliath, and for the next 15 years, he behaves like the king. And the whole time he does it, he honors the king. He refuses to get even with Saul because God put Saul in that place, and he's not going to mess with the Lord's anointed, even though David is the Lord's anointed, right? There's a lot of honor and respect and integrity in that. The reason I mention all this is if we're honest with ourselves, I think that we often want, when we think about our future, we often want a title without the responsibility. And uh, if I'm honest, for example, I like to be known as someone who has written a book way more than I actually like writing a book. You know, I have a PhD, which I needed for my work, but writing a dissertation is no fun. But being able to put Dr. O'Brien on my uh, airplane ticket, that feels pretty cool, uh, until somebody chokes, and then they think I'm a, like a medical doctor, and then I'm a little... <laughs> That will be embarrassing. But the, uh, the point is, I like the prestige that comes with having done something, being known as the person who did something, but actually having the responsibility to do it, I don't really want that. Um, and this is essentially what Saul got, right? He got the title of king, he got to live in the palace, he got the paycheck, and he had none of the responsibility. David had the opposite. He had all of the responsibility, he didn't have the title, and he didn't have the paycheck. But he did the work. Um, I got into ministry based on uh, what I knew about ministry, which was the guy in the suit preaching to the, all the people in the room, and, and I wanted to do that. I felt called when I was 17 to enter ministry and uh, had no idea for about the next 15 years what I was supposed to do in ministry. I felt like I was supposed to submit my 
calling, submit my career to Christ, and he would show me what was next. And uh, I went through a whole lot of awful jobs um, in the process of finding the one that I felt like God had called me to do. Uh, what I wish I had done is I, had, I wish I had followed David's example. And David didn't wait until somebody gave him permission or a paycheck to start living out God's purpose for his life. Um, that meant, of course, that it took him a long time before he could step into God's calling completely. He wasn't actually the king for about 15 years, and then he wasn't the king over all of Israel for another five years, so 20 years total before he took the throne. But he didn't wait to start doing what God had called him to do, which is leading the people in some way. Uh, if, we want, if we really feel called to something, whatever it is, and I'm not talking just about a religious calling like you feel called to ministry, but you feel called to a job and it's going to take you a long time to get there, teaching or nursing or something like that. We've got to find ways to start experiencing that calling without necessarily having to change our circumstances. Um, we've got to figure out how to do it now because I can tell you from experience, once you get the responsibility, if you aren't willing to do it without the title and the paycheck, you're not going to do it right. So learning to do what you're called to do without changing our circumstances. Um, the, uh, the most important of the awful jobs that I had before this one is I worked as a grader in a lumber mill. I'm surprised that I am eager to get anywhere near wood at this point in my life because I worked for 50 hours a week uh, standing in one place uh, while lumber came down this conveyor belt. And our job was literally to grab each piece and flip it and uh, grade it. So this is like, this is good stuff. And that's a one, right? And that's the top. And, uh, and if it's got a certain number of knots or a certain, number of bow, a certain amount of bow or whatever, then that lowers the grade. And then it gets complicated, like maybe that end of the board is a one and this end is a three. And then there's all this shorthand that you have to write because in like four seconds, it's going to go through this machine that cuts it and sorts it automatically. So you only get one chance to get it right. And it was a terrible job. Um, I would go home and just wash sawdust out of my ears and out from between my toes, long pants, socks, and steel toe boots, and I would have sawdust between my toes, and I don't have any idea how it got there. Um, but 50 hours a week, there was one day I remember, this was in South Arkansas um, after, co after college, I had a degree, double major and a minor, and I was working in a lumber mill. Um, that's what an English major will get you, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it is, but I'm just kidding. Um, that's what I had. English and Bible, and so I was perfect for the lumber mill. Um, the, um, but the, uh, what was I even saying about that? Oh, I remember one day it was 105 degrees outside. And when I left the metal building that the mill was in and stepped into the bright sunshine of 105 degrees, I went, ah, it felt so nice to be in the 105 because it was like 130 in that building, you know, with all those machines running and the whole thing. And about once a week, there was this giant man named Vernon. He ran the planer and his job was like to grab these rough pieces of lumber and toss them into this machine and whip them into shape. So he had hands like catcher's mitts. And he, every, once a week, he would slap me on the back and say, this is the kind of job that makes you wish you'd gone to college, isn't it? And then he'd laugh and laugh. And, um, and because he was massive, I just laughed and laughed uh, every time he said it. And uh, once a week, at least, he would say that to me. And, uh, but I spent um, 50 hours a week standing by the same people uh, for a year. And every day, uh, they knew I had a degree in Bible. And so they liked to tell me about all the things that they knew that I wouldn't learn in any book or any Bible school. Most of them were 
heretical and awful, but uh, I listened. They didn't care what I thought about anything. They didn't trust me. They didn't know me. They didn't uh, value my opinion, and that just ate me up. I thought, I'm the expert here, right? Because uh, I went to college, so I know all the things. And, um, but the, uh, what I learned is after several weeks and then several months of working beside them for 50 hours a week, they began to ask me questions because I worked as hard as they were working um, because I was there and sweated with them when the manager came by and he was checking quality and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I became one of them, and then they started to ask me my opinion about things. It taught me something very important about education uh, that you don't teach from here down to here, right? You teach like this. Um, and I wanted more education. I wanted to know more about the Bible. I wanted to know more about theology and more about history. But I realized on that line that if I can't talk about the Bible to a 60-year-old man who has an eighth grade education, then I don't have any business learning more things. I need to learn how to talk to the people that are in my life, right? And that job that I hated, I literally wept when I walked to the little post office in town that was only open two mornings a week because it was a very small town. Uh, when I got the acceptance letter to grad school, I literally wept in my sawdust, in my steel toe boots. I was so glad to be out of there. Um, but now, this is 10 years later or more, look back and think that is probably the most important job I've ever had in my life. Um, it did not help me to be a PhD in church history. It didn't help me uh, to be a public speaker, um, but it, it helped to make me a, a certain kind of person that could have done any number of things after that and done it much better than I would have done if I'd not had that experience. The, uh, so, all this is to say that I think David... I think I've taken too much time. I'll wrap up here pretty quick. Sorry. Bye. That's all I need. Um, all this is to say that David was prepared both professionally and spiritually in those 15 years that he waited. Um, in the 15 years he waited between his calling and the fulfillment of that calling, he was developed professionally and spiritually. For most of that 15 years, he was running for his life. So professionally, he was learning how to lead troops, how to wage war against the enemies. Spiritually, he was also learning how to wait on the Lord and how to worship him in song, how to lead other people to worship him in song. So Psalm 27 that we read at the very beginning of this, it's a Psalm of David, I think beautifully summarizes the kind of preparation David received while he waited. I'm not going to read all of it, but just a few lines again. The Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? Think Goliath, Saul, Amalekites, Philistines, years in the wilderness. When evil people come to devour me, which is what Goliath said I was, he was going to do. I'm going to kill you and then I'm going to eat you. Uh, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. David could not have written that psalm at the beginning of his calling because the way you learn how to wait on the Lord is by waiting on the Lord, right? The way you learn that God can protect you when an enemy surrounds you is by being surrounded by an enemy and living to tell about it, right? At our best, I think we want to do great things for God. Um, when at our least self-conscious and our least self-consumed, we really do want to make a difference for the kingdom, 
for God. And we may feel that in order to do that, what we need is greater influence and a greater platform and a larger audience or whatever. But I'm convinced more and more all the time that what God wants to do in us is way more important than what God wants to do through us. He'll find somebody to speak to a large group of people that he's called together. And it's going to be the person who has allowed him to, or her to work in their life, right? God, you can't mess up God's plans. God's going to make it work. He'll make it work with us if we'll let him work in us first. The reason I think it's so important to learn to wait well is because we never stop waiting. There will be a time when you finish college and then uh, you get a job, but it's not the job that you really want. So... Your, your college got you this job, but this job isn't the job you want, so you're waiting on the job that you want. And then you get that job, and then you'll realize, oh, no, there's four new jobs I didn't even think about. I want one of those now. Um, and so there's always a gap between what you wish you were doing and what you're currently doing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because a lot of times that's a holy ambition. God wants you to take another step, and he's urging you to take another step. But in every process of that journey, there's a long waiting time. The people I know who are the happiest Christians, the people I know who are the most productive Christians are people who know how to wait well, how to manage uh, those times in the middle. So uh, the, the night that I threw this, I should say the first night that I threw this uh, in the yard, uh, I learned obviously that, the, um, that preparation is important and that the job starts when I, stop, when I start preparing, not when I stop preparing, right? That's part of the calling. I also learned that night, this is sort of technical, but there's a point to it, that I had got a, gotten away with bad preparation because up until that night, I had been using really soft wood. And so I was sharpening this uh, blade very poorly, but I could get away with it because the wood that I was working was very forgiving. That night, I was working with cherry for the first time, and uh, it took me like all weekend to get that thing sharp enough uh, to work on the the cherry. But I thought I could approach this new challenge exactly the same way I approached the old challenge and everything would be fine. What I learned in the process is that I hadn't gone through the necessary preparation to take the next step. And there have been so many times in my life when what I thought I needed was a big break. I just needed somebody to recognize how talented I was and how good I was at my job. And, uh, and then I'd be, you know, on my rocket ride to whatever, not stardom, but you know, whatever the thing is we ride our rockets to. Um, I thought I would be on my way. And in retrospect, I'm so grateful that at those moments, God did not give me a break because he knew what I needed was I needed to get better before I got a break. Um, there was so long, I, was, I worked in Christian publishing for a little while, and I would see these people on the platforms at conferences and think, that guy doesn't have anything to say. Why, why don't, I could be doing that, right? Why am I not doing that? And I was so worried about having a place to speak that I wasn't worried at all about having anything to say. Um, and so I finally learned, look, your job is to shut yourself in your room alone and have something worth saying. And then if God wants to give you a platform to say it, that's great. But if you're looking for a platform without working on the message, then you've got things in the wrong order, right? Um, and so I've been grateful for the waiting. Uh, never enjoy it, but I've learned to be grateful for the waiting. And uh, we've got some questions for you guys uh, to talk through that, uh, that I think will help instead of always looking forward to what's next, kind of taking a moment to look around at what's happening now and see how that's opening doors uh, for where you're headed.